0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I feel like the biggest issue when I think about model minority is that there is a model minority, that there is a certain perspective or certain approach you should take to the way you live your life. But there isn't. I mean, if we just look around, if we see in media, we probably don't see ourselves reflected very often. But just because we don't see ourselves in certain positions or roles or living with families or this or that, It doesn't mean we can't live our lives the way we want to live them and just give out love and accept love and accept the communities that we're part of. You choose your life and you just live it the way you want to, because why not?
1: Welcome to
2: Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different.
1: I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City.
2: And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee.
1: Hey, Sharon. Hey, Revin.
2: It has been a year. Yeah, it really has. What a year. Well, we got a podcast off the ground.
1: <laughs> we did. That's something great coming out of this year, and we've come a long way since... Is it great? <laughs> I think it's great. I was just reflecting upon how we've been doing this since April, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. We've come a long way. We have.
1: And I think we've recorded about 60 episodes,
2: give or take. Jeez, that's a lot of candid conversations about work and life. Through the lens of race and gender. Someone read the marketing copy of the podcast. I
1: did. I memorized it. But we've gotten and have been able to share a lot of insights on how other folks really do experience the world.
2: Yeah. You know, I feel like that's the whole point of this, for us to just get out of our own way and let the guests tell their story.
1: Yeah. And we've had a lot of guests from a lot of different backgrounds.
2: And not just marketers. (laughs)
1: That's right. Although I do think your sister and her friends would think you have a little bit of a bias. (laughs) Because you are the recovering marketer and you tend to interview a lot of your friends from the industry.
2: Just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in.
1: (laughs) But anyway, so we've had some really great conversations with doctors, reporters, athletes, entrepreneurs, diversity experts, getaway car drivers, lawyers, and more than a few comedians.
2: Yeah. And what's so surprising is that everyone's experience is more diverse than what they represent. And in some cases, a lot of stories were the same, no matter what they were doing or who they were. And, and that's honestly why I personally enjoyed the opportunity and the privilege to put the show out every week for the past year. And
1: depending on how you look at things, we all have experiences as the majority and the minority sometimes. So that's been interesting too, hearing their perspective and getting stories from the other side as well.
2: That's kind of my favorite part of the show is I don't know everything and being able to sit back and ask dumb questions to folks. Yeah.
1: You seem to have mastered that across three podcasts. (laughs) (laughs)
2: So anyway, we figured as we wrap up our first year of modern minorities, we'd revisit some of the highlights from our past conversations. And this episode barely scratches the surface of some amazing conversations. We would highly recommend you go check out the earlier full length episodes with some of the guests that you're about to hear from.
1: And I just have to ask, Raman, what is it with you and comedians? I think we've had as many of them as your sister thinks we've had marketers.
2: (laughs) Well, it's comedians and entertainers, you know, one, they're more interesting than marketers. But it all rooted with one of our first guests, Rajiv Satyal, who beyond being my original goof off at work buddy from corporate America, he was also one of the first person I personally knew to have a podcast back when people listened to podcasts on iPods. And Rajiv has become a lot more than a comedian over the years. He's frankly a bit of a social commentator. (laughs) when MTV did its top 100 video countdown, I wrote all of the artists and the names of the songs down and I passed that around. And it was so obvious. It's like, you should be a social commentator. You're not a doctor. You're not a pre-med. You're not an engineer. That's insane. You are meant to comment on social culture. That's your thing. You're a pop culture guy. And being Indian though, this is where the Indian part plays in. And Raman can relate to this and Sharon, you probably too, which is that's not an option. That's not a thing. You can't go be a journalist or a, a rock critic or whatever else you're thinking about.
1: You know, that reminds me back in the day when I used to watch MTV, there was downtown Julie Brown. Do you remember her? The <laughs> VJ? We're old. <laughs> and she was so cool. She always wore the coolest clothes and she had this great accent. And I just really enjoyed watching her back then. But Okay. So seriously, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but after Rajiv, who was great and definitely one of our favorites, he then introduced us to his friends who happened to also be comedians. And beyond it being interesting to hear about their own stories of how they got into comedy, it was also just really hilarious to hear about how their family responded to their life choice of standing up on stage. And I loved the story of Eric Rivera's mom, and what she thought he was up to when he was starting off his career.
2: And she goes, "You're coming in at all these weird hours. Are you you're doing the drugs?" And I was like, "No, no, no, no. I'm doing stand-up comedy." And I think at that point she would have rather me say I was doing drugs because she could have put me in intervention or she could have put me in rehab because there is no rehab <laughs> for comedy. That actually happened to me once. What? <laughs> Okay. So I must've been in college or the boarding school, high school, and I was home for a weekend and my two best friends wanted to have a, a poker night. And to be clear for loser Indian kids in Alabama, a poker night is staying up all night, how to spend the night and learning how to play poker with pennies and drinking far too much Coca-Cola. But <laughs> I come home you know, the following Sunday having pulled effectively an all-nighter drinking Coke and playing penny poker. And my mom pulls me into the kitchen. She's like, are you on drugs? Oh, no. (laughs) It's like, if only you knew what a loser.
1: Like, no mama man, sugary soda, and I just won 10 cents.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And there were no girls involved.
1: There were zero girls involved.
2: (laughs) But look, not every story we heard from our comedian pals was always funny. Some of them were moving, like what we heard from Francisco Ramos.
3: So when I started doing comedy and going to auditions, I remember trying to hide my accent. Really me,
2: If I could do an American accent, I would do it because it works for my benefit in order to get more roles. But the reason that I was doing it is because I was embarrassed. I didn't have that confidence because I wanted to get accepted. But now, what's fun is once you start accepting who you are and really not caring what people say, that's when you start getting the parts because people always gravitate to originality and to realness. I think that's a thing that everybody goes through. The key to always in any situation be who you are
1: that's so true about sticking to who you are totally owning it and just being really authentic about that stuff that (laughs) stuff
2: another entertainer friend who we were able to reconnect with was tv actress resh machete and despite being an amazing talent I was surprised, but not surprised, to hear about the type of typecasting someone who looks like her has to constantly face.
1: And people want to see people who look like regular people. Well, that's really awesome. I look like a regular person, but... Sometimes people perceive you because you've played certain roles. I tend to always be put in very tight dresses and I was glammed up because I'm ethnic fun. And then that stops you from being seen as the woman who walks in and can have a breakdown or the mom of a teenage kid. Honestly, Remen, as a woman, I can tell you that that sort of preconceived notions that doesn't just happen to actresses. What do you mean? Well, I've had many instances where people have met me for the first time and they've just made assumptions like sometimes to my benefit hence the whole model minority stereotype and sometimes just completely out of left field like I and and I sort of enjoy surprising people in that way it's almost like I can tell when they're starting to go one way or another and and just dropping a bomb on them so recently I think a lot of people have met me and they just assume that maybe I'm not a mom so when I start to talk about life 10 or 15 years ago, or if I mentioned something about my personal life, I I often get just an expression change. And and I usually do love telling people that, you know, not only have I been able to build businesses and other things, but that I do have two little ones at home. And and it's interesting to, to watch that completely the younger shift. People like, the you're conversation. old. <laughs> and then I do get you're old. You're right. When I talk to people who are like 25. <laughs> That's also, yeah. That's also like another thing I get a lot too.
2: <laughs> kids nowadays. <laughs> Speaking of the kids, another one of our early guests was Zineb Wazani, a Moroccan tennis pro, and she moved to the U.S. as a kid. But later, her life completely got turned upside down.
1: Yeah, Z's story really helped me to better understand the journey that so many folks experience just to try to make it in America
3: my first day at school was probably the most terrifying day ever for me because I didn't know anybody. I didn't speak the language and it, it wasn't supposed to happen that way. I didn't even get to say goodbye to my friends because I just kind of like I went on vacation and never came back.
2: I don't know what it is, but as I'm getting older or maybe it's just being a father and as someone who has privilege just so much, I think it's important to understand how those who might have less or have less opportunity just to experience the world. And honestly, I think they navigate it. They thread that needle with a lot more grace and humility than I think I'd be able to.
1: That's definitely true. And as long as you stay out of trouble, Ramin, and you don't punch anyone (laughs) like Lucia Liu, who's um, a friend of our podcast and hosts Rock the Boat. I couldn't speak English at the time. I was still speaking Chinese at home. And so when my parents took me to kindergarten, I would play with the kids and some kids spit on me. And so I would go to the teacher's point and try to gesture. And I think at some point I probably punched a kid and the, the principal had to call my parents in. And they were like, oh, did she get picked on? If she got picked on, then good. She's doing the right thing. <laughs> so this is, again, why I feel like I was raised free range. You're so young at that point that you don't even know what's going
2: on. Those kids totally deserved it, dude. Her parents were totally in the right. Yeah. I
1: loved the way her parents responded to that. And she wasn't the only badass little girl kicking ass and taking names. Our pal Lan Pham, founder of Community of Seven, had a similar story to tell. Growing up, we were on this block in Inglewood, eight or nine, and the neighbor had said something insulting, and so we ended up in a fight. The whole neighborhood was surrounding us, and my brothers were like, "You have to fight." So there was a realization that to grow up in this neighborhood, I needed to fend for myself. I just remember this kid takes a skateboard and tries to hit me. I grab it and I punch him, and I basically won the fight. And I was this little girl, right? I remember going home to my dad and just bawling, and my brothers got their butt whipped from my father because they didn't protect me me. me, no one's going to fight the fight for you. And you have to stick up for yourself because if you don't, you're going to be bullied even more.
2: Sharon, our childhood was way too soft.
1: Hey, speak for yourself. I'm from the mean streets of Chinatown. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Lots of dim sum, lots of (laughs) dumplings,
1: For sure. But it's important to speak up and it's pretty easy for anyone to say that. But another one of our guests, Mita Malik, challenged our thinking a lot, especially as we get older and start facing tough situations.
2: Yeah, Mita's a bit of a rock star on the diversity and inclusion scene. She's led DNI efforts at Unilever, she's now at Carta, and she's been published in Harvard Business Review, Forbes, Fast Company, and so many more.
1: And just hearing her thoughts around bullying and the cost of advocacy really changed the way I think about things. Advocacy will cost you something. It will cost you your pride. It will cost you your comfort, either physical or emotional, financial security. It's not for free. It will cost you something. And so in that moment, when I think about where were the peers, where were my peers, why didn't anyone intervene? Because it's scary, right? It's scary to intervene, especially if it's somebody who's in a position of power that you're going to choose to call out and the power dynamic is real.
2: And what's funny, I think we all kind of know this, but I hope others hearing Mita and a lot of our guests express in such stark terms will help folks think about how they can be more supportive to the plights of others.
1: Sounds like you're teeing up your friend, Carl
2: Ruman. Dude, Carl Preissner is one of my (laughs) all-time favorite people in the world. And as I like to tell people, some of my best friends are white.
1: Carl is definitely our real-life superhero.
3: If all you're doing is saying, I'm not part of the problem, I guarantee you you're part of the problem because the systems are built to reinforce it along the way. These are things like our legal system, which at one time said only white people could be citizens, or it could be voting legacies where it's a hundred years now only that women would be able to vote, right? There are all these systems set up to create inequity. And if we're not actively working to identify them and change them, Then we might say, well, I'm not that way, but we very much are. We collude. And so I think getting at the systemic level is key. And from a personal standpoint, it has to come to a realization for more people that when we talk about these things, we're all colluding, right? Particularly, I think racism, there's the notion that this is some discrimination committed by immoral individuals, you know, that they're mean people who intentionally dislike others and what that totally misses is no I'm racist like me Carl I, I know that I hold views that left unexamined are based on bad facts or bad bad assumptions
1: Ironically we recorded that chat with Carl before everyone else decided to wake up and have a conversation about race
2: Yeah my only fear is that the pressure that I think is on right now or the realization or the wokeness that everyone has I wonder if that's just going to ease up as we go into the new year or, or if this sort of thing will remain top of mind.
1: That's true. But I think that's why people need to hear about the experiences of others. And it's important that folks are open and willing to share these things, like my friend Abby Allen, who's founder of Neon Butterfly.
2: White people realizing that Black people (laughs) experience racism on a daily basis. Oh my God, like me having to realize how much I have swallowed and pushed down. I can't just do that anymore because it has taken such a toll on my health mentally and physically. I used to just have to be perfect. I give myself no leeway ever. I've had so many sicknesses from stress and running myself into the ground and not thinking that I was good enough or pretty enough, all the not enoughs. And now I'm finally at a place where I'm like, you're good enough. It's a daily practice. Yeah, it's it's key to hear it. From people who don't look like you, who don't have the same experience, because you just don't know what they're going through. And another guest on another podcast that I've got is a Black woman living overseas. And she actually told me that not being subject to the day to day stress of race in America, of being a Black woman with a Black family in America, but being overseas, she says it's like having an oxygen mask for her and her family.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Being Black in America is something I think we could all try to better understand. Between my husband, who's Black, and my two boys, who are half Black, it's something that I think about a lot today, especially as they get older and as the world changes. And hearing the childhood stories of your pal, Bevan, actually uh, hit pretty close to home for me.
2: I mean, I felt ashamed for being Black to this day, there's certain times where that sort of comes to you, but as you get older, you kind of deal with that. As a child, yeah, I, I certainly felt ashamed. But you get made fun of. You're in a different country. It's a different culture. You don't have family here, and their accents different, so you don't have the the quick comebacks and so forth. So, yeah, definitely, definitely felt ashamed. Definitely, there were definitely some nights, uh, some days, I'd get home just feeling down and so forth. I wouldn't really tell my mom about it because she didn't really care. Um, but you know, yeah, and yeah, well, so many of us actually turned out okay. Bevan, you, me—the one thing I didn't expect from the conversations we had on the show was the amount of reflections that I personally have on my own childhood. But when we hear these conversations from other folks,
1: and then at the same time, we heard from folks like Alexis Augusto at the Four A's, whose childhood experience was so much different from ours. Growing up in Jersey City, you witness a lot that you wouldn't witness in other places. Homelessness being one of the bigger things. Honestly, if we're keeping it real, real. I can not I can no longer tell the difference between a firecracker and a gunshot because the area that I lived in was very crime ridden in terms of like it was drug infested and, and things like that. Like my next door neighbor was a drug dealer. So,
3: and I, I didn't learn that until later on in life. I was always yeah. like wondering like, why is, why are different people always going into that house? Like <laughs> it's never the same person. And then I realized my, my father looked at me like, really Lex? You can't put <laughs> two together? Come on, re- think real hard.
2: So one of the things we ask a lot of our guests is actually about how they tried to fit in. This idea of code switching comes up a lot on the show. I'm sure you've read about it, but it sometimes has negative implications from your own people, from even how you think about yourself. And our pal Kenyatta in the UK, who might just be the best dressed man I know.
3: When I was a kid, I used to get told, why are you trying to talk white? What does that mean? I'm just speaking. Or when white kids get told, why are you trying to act black? Well, what does that mean? There isn't a way to be or behave that's connected to a color, in my view. But I think there are some cultural norms that exist. And I I wouldn't say that I was being disingenuous, but I did feel there were parts of my culture and parts of myself that I couldn't bring to the table because they might be judged negatively. Now, whether or not I felt that was correct or not, obviously I didn't and still don't.
1: Another new friend of ours was Castell. And to hear about some of his experiences were really eye-opening.
3: So we're watching Roots in our history class. And we get to the the point where Kunta is getting hung on the tree. They're telling him that his name is Toby because he's identifying with his African name. And they're saying, yo, your name is Toby. He's saying, no, my name is Kunta. They keep whipping him. They keep whipping him. My classmates thought it was a great idea to call me Toby. Like that was what they took from that. And so having those moments, for me, that was... I just can't try to fit in here anymore. I just have to do my own thing.
2: Yeah. Being a kid sucked. Being a teenager sucked. And and mostly because other kids can be terrible. And while I hope none of us had to experience some of the things that Castile did, I feel like they're inevitable, no matter what age you are and where you are in this country. And I think every one of us has to have had that wake up moment where we choose to stop trying so hard to fit in with what others want. And- trying to be something that we aren't and i loved hearing that from him
1: you know who castell reminds me of
2: i'm guessing you're not going to say dean thomas from house gryffindor <laughs> because of the cloaks he had to wear at his boarding school
1: <laughs> no no i was actually thinking about my pal Mara cock from where are the boss ladies and this idea that she had spoken about about marching to the beat of her own drum no matter what folks expected of her I'm sure you can relate to this where it's like society or your parents brainwashes you to achieve a certain thing like that title or become a doctor or get that corner office or become like whatever. And so I thought I was chasing these things that, you know, not through my parents, but sort of like what is cool. Once I had that. I realized it wasn't made for me. It was something that every creative fantasizes about. But once I had it, I was like, whoa, this is not what I imagined it was going to be. And I'm going to throw everything away and start something and try a few different things to find what really fits my personality.
2: Yeah, I totally want to be here when I grow up. Dude, you are grown up. (sighs) Don't remind me. (laughs) But, you know, even as adults, some of us have, again, this privilege of just our gender. And I knew that. I always had an awareness of it. But some of the stories I've heard from our guests on the show has made me so much more aware of what women face in the workplace every day. And our friend and all-around badass Ashlyn Gentry gave us her take.
0: The small things add up every single day, like being in a room where you have prepared materials for the entire meeting and everyone else is getting eye contact except for you. Standing around with a number of executives and everyone who you've not yet met assumes that you are an assistant or a junior team member. It's the small things that break down your confidence every single day.
1: It's not even funny, Remen. It's not even funny. And as an entrepreneur, that only gets harder, being a woman in the workplace. And something we heard from one of our pals, Suzanne Sinatra, who's founder of Private Facts. Being a Black female founder is nothing short of just difficult. Now, being
0: a Black
1: founder of a femtech slash sex tech company is even more excruciating because I get turned down for stuff because I'm a they, say that I'm a sex tech founder because of the coverage area that private packs provides therapy to. So for instance, I found out that Silicon Valley Bank would not give me a bank account because they thought I was embezzling money.
2: Another irony of the show is around the exact same time that we talked to Suzanne about her experiences as a Black entrepreneur, we had a chat with Joe Medved, who I'd argue is one of the nicest VCs in the world. And we actually asked him for his take on the problem being a minority entrepreneur and what people have to do to make the change we need to see
3: it's making that extra effort to try and get outside your common networks and connect with others to really make up for what is clearly an unfair bias in our community. There are all kinds of groups that are underrepresented, but puts the responsibility on us to try to reach out to other networks? I think at the end of the day, you're foolish if you don't understand the economic
1: value of reaching out to diverse founders as well, right? And if you look at our society, we're increasingly global, we're increasingly diverse. And if you're ignoring large swaths of the population, you're going to miss out. I found what Joe said to be so inspiring and so wonderful. And I just realized we should connect those two. We should actually introduce them to each other. So, on the flip side of that, though, there's a silver lining of optimism if you choose to see it. And I really love how our pal, Matt Story of the What's Your Story podcast,
3: chooses to view the world. To be a minority, you have a superpower and that superpower comes from being able to live in the mainstream world where you can adapt, assimilate, code switch, whichever other term you want to use. And then you also live in your own cultural world where you succeed, you have family, you have connections, you hopefully thrive. And that gives you the ability that makes you just a better leader.
2: He had me at superpowers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you are, you are a superhero, Remen. you are. Okay. So beyond just fitting in. We also heard lots of immigrant stories, like how our podcasting pal, Jay Wong's parents got out of Vietnam.
3: Essentially, they only had enough money to put them into one of the boats. And obviously, I don't know if you've heard any stories around people doing a similar escape type of journey, but they used to flood these boats, right? Like it was not safe whatsoever. There was no standard procedure, right? Everything was like under the table. And mm-hmm. um, long story short, the boat ended up sinking.
2: And, and I don't think people realize that's kind of what all of us are a couple generations away from. It it happened to someone in your past, maybe not as harrowing of a story, but kind of what people did to get here. And look, most of those stories do have a happy ending. And honestly, there's sometimes an interesting wake up call to be starting out in a new country, like we heard from our Caribbean pal, Carol Tong Mack. <laughs>
1: I remember when I arrived in the U.S., the bright lights of New York City, we arrived at night at JFK. I was so amazed as a 13-year-old. Oh, my God, this is the land of the free. I was so excited to be here. I thought, the buildings do not get this tall in Antigua, ever. I was so elated, and it was so great to be there. But then the next morning when I woke up, oh, okay, I'm in an apartment. I didn't know what an apartment was before, but thank God I used to watch the Jeffersons. I didn't understand apartment-style living because in Antigua,
3: we all got a house. And I'm like, why aren't we in a house?
1: But your Cincinnati pal, Gian, had the best childhood impression of coming to America. My dad had a big dream to come to the U.S., and... First time I came to the U.S., I thought like I was an alien because we were in Staten Island and there wasn't really that many Koreans around and the food was different. So I always felt like, oh, I took a spaceship <laughs>
2: in the
1: U.S. And, <laughs> and new surroundings.
2: I, I think the only thing funnier was how Rappell John Pollock told the story about how he came out to his mother in the car on the way to the airport. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
3: She asked, well, what about in Italy? Was your friend Stefano gay? And to which I replied, yes. And then she said, well, why was he telling me he likes all those girls from Sex and the City? <laughs> and to which I replied, mom, that's the gayest thing anyone could ever say.
1: So when we started the show, we spoke to a lot of Asians. <laughs> and we'd always hear that their parents wanted them to be doctors and lawyers. And Shocker. I, I know. And I thought I was going to be a doctor, the whole thing. And then we wound up talking to so many guests that were doctors and lawyers, but never Asian. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Our parents who are listening are so disappointed. Beta, <laughs> why can't you be like those guests? And so I really loved hearing my friend Erin's story about her getting into law school.
3: So I started law school in 2011. And and when I applied, they sent me back my acceptance letter and said, and also we're awarding you this scholarship for minorities. and. I actually called the school because I was like, is there some confusion? Like, I actually am just like a white person who grew up 10 minutes from this school. <laughs> like, I don't. <laughs> Did you mean to give me this scholarship? And and they pointed out to me, you know, that, well, that I was a woman and, and that there weren't as many women applying to law school as men. And that's why they gave me this scholarship.
1: But lawyering doesn't always have a happy ending. There are some harsh realities, like we heard from your pal and ICE attorney, Buck
3: a crisis of conscience. Over three years, I watched this young man progressively get worse in terms of behavior and consequences. It ended up that he was charged as an adult for felony murder. And I'm literally holding this kid's hand at the age of 16 as he's to be charged as an adult and face a good amount of his life in prison as a system. Where did we go wrong? I felt like I was part of the problem and not part of the solution. I remember having this conversation with my father and just saying, I got to find something else to do because I can't keep doing this. This is going to kill me.
2: And one of the doctors we had on our show was Dr. Nzinga Harrison, host of the amazing podcast In Recovery. And her perspective on addiction was just as much a wake up call as any other guest story.
3: Addiction patients get treated like crap by psychiatry that gets treated like crap by the medical system. The way people with addiction are being treated is the very embodiment of injustice and oppression. And I said, I'm gonna be a doctor and a teacher. I'm gonna teach other doctors and health professionals about addiction in a way that helps them see that these are people with an illness that we have to stop oppressing.
1: Another serious lesson learned was when we talked to our pal Jay Veraldi, founder of Animalia, an environmental and conservationist site and podcast.
3: In the animal kingdom, you're ultimately prioritizing your basic needs to be fulfilled, community, and joy with others. You're not prioritizing for growth and greed. You're not saying, I need more than my neighbor. I need more than this. I don't have enough. In our modern Western world and modern China world as well, that is priority one. I need more. I need more things. I need more stuff. And it really creates a lot of
2: problems. Yeah. One of the reasons I liked having Jay on the podcast was his stance is in the minority, unfortunately. And- His stories were really a call to action of where else beyond race that we could really use a reckoning and and a wake-up call.
1: Another topic we talked about a lot was the relationship with our parents and how we all have different points of views. Because as the children of immigrants, we had very different experiences from our immigrant parents. And in 2020 especially, there were more tough conversations on race, as my pal Lulu G mentioned. (laughs) system of upholding this model minority concept leads people to believe they've pulled themselves up by the bootstraps and because of all of the injustice and the hardships that they've had to endure that anyone else can do it too. And that's something I realized that before I can even have a conversation with my parents about the injustice of today and why Black Lives Matter, I needed to do more work to understand everything that they've been through. So that's where the conversation had to start because otherwise I'm coming from a place of privilege in relationship to the experiences that my parents have been through.
2: Yeah, and even Kim Tai of Ganesh Space helped us understand things from our parents' perspective and kind of what they wanted and all the things they were trying to do.
3: And I'm sure your parents feel the same way. There's this push and
2: pull of preservation, right, of your culture when you come and immigrate here and you want your kids to be good Americans and to assimilate in whatever form that makes sense, right? But you also don't want to lose the pieces that made them who
1: they are. And many of us are also becoming parents. I really loved what your UK doppelganger not the better version, but a different version of Rem and Segal.
2: The one with the (laughs) funny accent.
1: (laughs) The one with the funny accent. I love what he had to say about the differences between our kids' childhood experience versus our own childhood.
2: How do you get that balance? between giving your kids the life you want to give them because you've got enough to give them the best possible life but at the same time get them to understand the value my kids have loads of soccer jerseys right when i was 15 years old when i got my first one and i didn't get the one i wanted i got the second version but nevertheless i wore it every day for like a week like i really really understood the value this is why i think it's hilarious that we grew up in different countries Yeah, and and don't get me started on growing up and coming to terms with your own ethnic heritage. That was something we heard from my pal, Ida. My identity as an Iranian-American didn't really come out until college. Before that, I really identified much more as American. Even though I was proud to be Iranian, I definitely did not have the chance to explore that as much because I just didn't have that around me. You know, I didn't have people of my age group to hang out with that ate the food and spoke the language and listened to the music, right? So that didn't really come out for me until I had that community.
1: But when you can really embrace your cultural heritage, it's a beautiful thing, which is something friend of the pod Goli had to say about her Persian heritage and relationship with Iran. Iranians honestly are some of the most hospitable people in the whole world. Just being in the streets and the hospitality of strangers and the kindness. There's just a culture. I honestly wish I could explain it. And even when I was there, I couldn't explain it. There's like a smell, the vibrancy, a feeling of being in the markets and in the streets. Everything is always a family gathering. It's always tons of food and dancing and tons of people. And so just that sense of community and vibrancy is really what I miss.
2: It's about having your feet in two worlds. And honestly, sometimes you struggle to find your footing. And this is something my Egyptian pal Seif talked a lot about because he grew up in Ohio with, with roots in the Middle East
3: interesting. I was just talking to my parents about this. I don't feel at home here in my hometown and I haven't for a long time. New York, above all places in the world, is the one place I feel more at home than anywhere else. And that's even more so than when I'm in Egypt, by the way, right? I feel at home in Egypt to a certain extent, but I can be more me in New York than I can be in Egypt. And I consider my Egyptian identity and roots, traits, language, despite that New York is more home to me than anywhere else.
1: Another really interesting thought on cultural heritage, though, was the idea of going back and giving back. Probably easier said than done for many, but our pal Stanley Lumax, founder of African Chop House and the Harlem restaurant Taranga, had a really interesting take.
3: She said, "The one thing that Africa is missing is the return of its children." That was a really powerful statement because here we are, all around this diaspora, becoming successful and doing amazing things, and. I think it's important that we don't forget the need to look towards the continent. And some of us, that might be a lot easier than others, and others, it may be more idealistic. But I think the reality is Africa does not move to the next level without taking a proactive approach to helping it evolve.
2: But it's easier said than done. You know, it's so hard to split the difference. And somehow the math doesn't always add up, kind of like our pal Stefan K. James told us. What's cool
1: about South Florida, where we ended up, there's a massive population of Caribbean people, of Jamaican people. 60, 70% of my friends were Jamaican or had Jamaican
0: parents. And so I got a really nice blend of the culture, but in the U.S. with different types of resources. And of course, I'm American as well, so
2: I don't like when people try to say, are you Jamaican, are you American? No, I'm both, and I'm 100%
1: Jamaican, and I'm 100% American. It's good to know, though, that Americans aren't the only ones with these problems. Even friend of the pod Melissa up in Canada feels the same way.
2: That is kind of where we get into the old high school and middle school lessons of that nuance between the melting pot and mosaic, because I think for a lot of people, there is the sentiment in Canada, like, yeah, I'm Canadian, but I'm Jamaican. And then yeah, like I live here and whatever, but my culture and what I want to extend to the next generation is rooted in my heritage. Because I also think there's a lot of conversations around kind of the nebulousness of Canadian identity, like does it even exist wholesale anyways? So So it's always an interesting nuance to me. Okay, okay, okay. But do you want to know my all-time favorite story from the podcast? This better not
1: be comic book related.
2: Well, it kind of is because (laughs) it's from my other co-host on my other super secret underground comic book podcast, Ryan Joe.
0: When I got into the elevator, she looked at me and started going, hi, hi, hi. And I'm just like, oh, she's crazy. Great. But she was so enthusiastic about it. It wasn't malicious. I think that was just her deformed way of thinking. And she started asking me where I was from. And, you know, I don't really want to entertain her because, like, the fuck, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But, I, you know, I said, let's make a game out of this. I said, where do you think I'm from? And she said, Japan. I said, Oh, no, that's not right. Yeah. And then she said, China. And I said, Well, yes, but that's obvious, isn't it? That's rather easy. Where in China? Do you think I'm from? And so I tried to see, you know, just kind of string her along that way. And basically, and then it was her stop. And then she had to get off. I said, I'm sorry, you just don't know. And that was kind of it. It was hard to be offended, because she was, you know, it's like when somebody's crazy, yells at you, and you're like, All right, well, you're crazy. So yeah, you've got to deal with that. But at the same time, you know, it is a little bit shocking when that happens. And I think kind of playing that game with her was a way of reexerting control over the situation. Like, oh, you want to play the Asian guessing game? Let's play the Asian guessing game.
2: Absolutely ridiculous. Did you ever have shit like that happen to you? Of course. Okay. Don't leave me hanging.
1: (laughs) Well, I get asked where I'm from all the time. And because I look Asian, but not identifiably clear what part of asia i've gotten all sorts of things from like sometimes indonesian sometimes it's thai sometimes i'm filipino and people are just always super curious and and they get more annoyed if i take longer just to give them the direct answer related to this i recently did 23 and me <laughs> to really find out where I'm from. And
2: it's at Indonesia, Philippines. <laughs>
1: I have a little bit. Thailand. It's funny. I So I am mainly Chinese, but it's like 3% Vietnamese, 3% Thai, and 3% Indonesian. So I, I can have a very colorful answer now when people ask me, and it would be totally truthful. <laughs> what about you?
2: I mean, if I don't speak up and the beard's in full effect, I can get away with Latin American. The amount of Spanish that gets spoken to me at bodegas and grocery stores is kind of funny. But otherwise, I just get a lot of aunties and saris asking me for directions on the street and airports <laughs> on the oh. streets of New York. And it's usually in Hindi and Punjabi. And I have to speak <laughs> back to them in what little broken Indian Punjabi I can.
1: It's because you look like such a responsible, respectful Indian man.
2: <laughs> they clearly know nothing about me. And I'm okay with that. But I think that's kind of what I like about this show. I mean, it's been a year. It's been a really tough year, never mind being locked up at home and watching just the ridiculousness of what's going on in the world. It's been helpful to talk to other people about their experience. And it's also been helpful to listen and really hear what, what other people are feeling and doing and what they've been going through, not just this year, but the last 20, 30, 40 years. Sometimes sometimes it makes me more pessimistic, but I actually get optimistic and hopeful, especially if more people will listen to these stories. And I think that's why we keep doing this show. Yeah. It's
1: been really great to hear from you guys who are listening how much you've enjoyed the show and, and how it's impacted your lives too. So that's really meant a lot and it's kept us going
2: as well. So keep listening and we'll keep making the show. Have a happy holidays. And
1: let's hope for a much better, brighter, and more optimistic 2021.
2: Challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
1: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three.
2: Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, mom at modmypod.com.
1: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
2: That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel, And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
1: We'll talk to you soon.